Welcome to the Political Deactivist podcast. Firstly, let's read some questions from our listeners. Uh, hang on, there are none, because this is the second episode ever. Still don't know what I'm doing, still don't know what this is about. But hey, let's get through this together, shall we? Welcome back to the show. We're talking about three things when it comes to COVID. We're going to talk about the statistics. We're going to talk about the economics and we're going to talk about the philosophy. And we're going to talk about your mom. So who knew? Who knew the cure for COVID was police brutality? I mean, I I wish I knew this sooner. Uh, Last week, I was killing grandma by leaving my house. And this week, I'm a racist if I don't. Crazy times, crazy, crazy times. Let's try and make sense of this. I think it's a good time actually to retrospectively look back on COVID and see if the lockdowns were justified. Now, I've said for a long time that they weren't, uh, but I hesitated posting detailed uh, analysis of this because people were a little bit emotional about it. But now that they're emotional about something else, maybe this is an opportunity to talk some sense and figure out what's going on okay so let's do it if you want to follow along this is actually a detailed article on our website on politicaldeactivist.com and i'll have all the stats there but also all of the links will be in the show notes page the main question would be was covid the apocalyptic disaster they told us it would be and was the government forced government shutdown i should say was that justified now I was skeptical at the start and I read a really, really good joke somewhere. I can't remember where I read it now, but it said, imagine if 9-11 was happening right now and the firefighters were making TikTok videos. That's how, I guess, emotionally speaking, I felt, hey, look, this isn't as bad as it seems. But now let's actually look at the stats and see if that is correct or if I was just an idiot. And let's face it, I'm an idiot most of the time. So let's have a look at the stats that forced the lockdown. All jokes aside, I don't want to show that COVID-19 isn't serious. I want to show that the modeling that caused the forced shutdown was exaggerated and that the media loved disaster. And because they loved disaster, they further inflated these projections. If you don't think the media have blood on your hands, uh, CBS were caught faking COVID patients for a segment that they had to make a hospital look busy. Now that is just crazy stuff. And again, that will be in the show notes page. Now, okay, so what did the experts actually claim would happen? They claimed that there would be exponential growth, that the virus would have exponential growth, and that would cause the hospital system to collapse. Mainly that the ICU beds would be, uh, there wouldn't be enough of them, wouldn't be enough respirators. And then they would have to make decisions on who lives and who dies. Now, there's a professor of structural biology at Stanford, uh, and he's the winner of the 2013 Nobel Peace Prize for Chemistry uh, for the development of multi-scale models for complex chemical systems. Okay, so I think this guy knows a thing or two about numbers and systems and modeling. Now, Professor Levitt explains that there's a four-week spike in hospitalizations, and then the numbers continue on a downward trajectory. That isn't due to the lockdowns. He doesn't attribute it to that. He sees that across the board where this virus has hit. He does put emphasis on a few helpful measures like wearing masks, 
uh, when you're sick, especially, uh, wireless payment systems, uh, infrared temperature measurements for private property um, to make sure that sick people aren't entering your, your property or your store. Um, these uh, measures seem to be variable in the equation and have proved to have positive results. Another expert who's ignored by the corporate-sponsored media, Dr. John Illinois, uh, he's a co-director of Stanford University's uh, Research Center. He's an epidemiologist, uh, a really, really smart guy, and his videos are amazing. Uh, he predicted that the, well, actually, he, he uh, extrapolated, he, he researched, and he found that the mortality rate is more likely 0.2% rather than the 3.4% that the WHO were parried in and uh, telling us it was. And he said it's virtually meaningless, that number. Uh, actually, the CDC has come out and said that this is right. They didn't say he was right, but their numbers show that it is closer to 0.2%. Uh, it took, <laughs> only took them like four months, uh, but still, it shows that the modelling was wrong. So what were our predictions in Australia? What did they say was going to happen? They said that the best case scenario, we would have 25,000 people in ICU beds. They said the most likely scenario, we'd have 35. And the worst case, 45,000 people. And we need to flatten this curve, blah, 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 blah. Did we have numbers anywhere near that? And the answer is no. But I understand a common objection to me saying this would be, hey, look, this is a prevention paradox. It's the idea that the coronavirus didn't do much damage, but that's because we shut down. We shut down, therefore, that's why our numbers are so good. Now, this is difficult to prove or disprove for a number of reasons. People will compare Australia to Italy or Australia to America and say, look, it's working. We did it because, you know, America, they defied their uh, restrictions. Uh, and Italy went terribly and, you know, Australia locked down early and that's the main reason. Disregard all of the government policy. What's the difference between Australia and Italy, really? Italy have the highest percentage of elderly out of all European countries. They kiss each other when they say hello and goodbye. They share every meal, like think about their big pasta meals and all of that kind of stuff. They have an amazingly dense population especially in the parts where COVID hit the worst, right? They have a socialized medical system. And importantly, 24,981 people died of flu between 2016 and 17. So should we keep making the comparison to Italy? Is that a good comparison to make for Australia? We're a massive isolated island. We aren't packed in like sardines. We eat our own meals. We don't kiss each other like we're in a mafia movie. And we have a relatively good hospital system with private healthcare options. Italy's hospital system fails basically every winter. And a great question no one really asks is how effective are the lockdowns really? I mean, the, the enforcement of the lockdowns. Like, sure, there aren't any people on the beach, but the supermarket is full. Go on TikTok and look at how many people, and it's so ironic that they film this. They'll film the Westfield shopping mall and it's absolutely packed and they're like, oh, we don't care about COVID because nothing can kill us in this kind of sarcastic tone. And it's like, yeah, bro, what are you doing there? At, at the moment, you can only have 10 people in a restaurant. What does that mean? That means that 10 people get into the restaurant and the rest of them walk the streets up and down waiting for a table. 
does that really stop the virus? Really? Does that make any sense to you? And so you have to ask yourself, is this actually effective? Is, is the lockdown really the key factor that has made our numbers so great? We're going to get into the kind of philosophy behind this, but I just want to point out that the government scientist Neil Ferguson resigned after breaking lockout rules to meet his married lover. You know, it's, it's absolutely insane that the person who is guiding the government, telling them to enforce these rules, can't even obey them. Well, let's go back and see the predictions. Let's see what caused this panic and shutdown in more detail. Remember, this is my issue. My issue is that the predictions were exaggerated by the media, forcing us to shut down, and that shutdown will cause more harm than good. Now, if we look at America, we can see that the protective measures to save the hospital system is actually sickening when you look at how they allowed their system to crumble under government regulations. Remember in 2017 when hospitals were overwhelmed by flu patients and started treating them in tents? Oh, you don't remember that? Well, the link is in the show notes and it's also in the article. And remember, they've also made all of these makeshift hospitals that are empty at the moment. There are no COVID patients in there. One of the craziest things about the American hospital system is this thing called the Certificate of Need Regulation, or CON for short, which is, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of telling. Now, the CON regulation means that if you're a hospital, let's say you're a hospital in New York City and you have this CON regulation, which means that if another hospital wants to open, they need your permission first. They need to ask you whether there's a need for that second hospital. That's absolutely crazy. Imagine if that was for any other industry. Imagine if you're a hairdresser and you like you want to open up a studio and you have to go to your competition directly and say, hey, is there a need for more hairdressers? They're going to say, piss off. It's absolutely insane. So the fact is that, yeah, Americans are under-resourced when it comes to health. And one of the big reasons is because of over-government regulation. And if you want... To learn more about that, I also posted an article on political deactivist called COVID Can't Break Our Healthcare System. Ferguson said that there would be 2 million deaths in the US. That hasn't happened. Uh, also, as stated previously, he himself couldn't even follow the laws. Look, I want to finish up talking about the stats because, look, it's boring. It's really boring. Uh, New York, where it's been worst hit, they had 500 people in ICU and they had 3,000 extra beds. So look, no, the hospital system didn't collapse. And because it didn't collapse, let's end the shutdowns now. It's a no-brainer. If that's the reason why we shut down, let's end it. Because the formula was wrong. You were just wrong. Just take it on the chin. Say, look, we are wrong about this. Let's move on. Get on with it. Okay, I'll add that in New York State, two-thirds of patients were over 70 years of age. More than 95% were over 50 years of age. And 50% of all fatal uh, cases had an underlying illness and it's so funny because uh there was an article i don't know i don't even know if it's parody anymore man but um they said that uh george floyd died of covid or that he tested positive for covid and was asymptomatic man that's just telling isn't it funny yeah but anyway so sweden man sweden didn't even lock down they suggested uh people take care of themselves uh, and they had a quite a big uh, death toll at the start. 
Uh, but now the WHO are actually praising Sweden's approach. And here's a quote from a WHO official that says, I think if we are to reach a new normal, I think in many ways Sweden represents a future model. Uh, and now they have herd immunity, which we are probably nowhere near. And that, that's the thing. Uh, this, for these lockdown measures to actually work, it would require every single person locking down in the entire planet until the virus itself is dead. So it's funny, like if we open up our border and one dude with uh, COVID comes in, what's ScoMo going to say? Go to your room? Go to your Zoom? Like, don't come out until I say so? It just doesn't make sense. The hospital system's fine. All right, let's talk about the economy now. And as soon as I say that, you're like, I knew it. He just wants to kill grandma and save his money. Well, you haven't met my grandma. Okay, that was a joke, a pretty bad one. But look, medical experts are not economic experts. And a lot of the economic experts that you see on TV are not economic experts either. And that's a huge problem. Uh, here's a lovely quote that I, uh, that I absolutely am in love with, and I've posted it a lot recently. And it says, The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Because what you will tend to find is that when a government uh, institutes an economic policy, they will normally have one factor that they point to and say, hey, see, this, this actually worked, this was great, we had a great outcome, and they'll ignore everything else all of the negative consequences that go along with it. That's not only true for economic policy, that's true for a lot of things as well that they do. Now, the UN has estimated that an additional 130 million people will be living on the edge of starvation, largely due to the economic impact of coronavirus. WFP Executive Director David Beasley says our analysis shows that 300,000 people could starve to death every single day over a three-month period. Child sex abuse has increased over the coronavirus period. Suicide has increased. It always does during a recession. The US had 30 million new people filing for unemployment in the last few weeks. And Australian unemployment is an all-time high. And we all know that unemployment is a well-established risk factor of suicide. In fact, 23 people who die by suicide are unemployed at the time of their death. Uh, teen suicide in Victoria has already risen. And remember, teens are not at risk from COVID. So these are people that didn't have to die that are pushed over the edge. Uh, and of course, look, suicide, there's multi, multi-leveled reason. Multi, not, there's layers to it. There's mental health issues involved. But look, it's, it's almost like giving someone a bullet for their gun and saying, oh, well, it wasn't me. I was then pulling the trigger. Uh, I don't think that flies. Future suicide is going to outstrip corona deaths, a uh, uh, model suggests. Domestic violence has increased, and they're actually calling it intimate terrorism now. Intimate terrorism. Online child abuse videos have increased in circulation on the dark web. Uh, and now we don't know the numbers of how many people will die of other, convi- uh, other conditions because they're too scared to go to the hospital because they might get corona. So, you know, if you have like a... If you have cancer, it's important that you find it quickly and you treat it quickly. Uh, What we do know in terms of numbers is that in the last financial crisis, the 2008 financial crisis, 500,000 people died of untreated cancer just because of financial hardship. 
So the, the, the point here, though, is very simple. It's, there's always negative consequences when it comes to sweeping economic policy, when it comes to sweeping decisions that affect everyone. So let's talk a little bit more about the economy. The Australian government has committed $320 billion so far to coronavirus relief. But my question to you is who pays that bill? Well, you do. And if you don't pay it in taxes, you pay it in inflation. And skipping over all of the technical aspects, the RBA will print money to pay the debt. And with more money in circulation, the less your money is worth. Now, pretend you are the one in control. You're the economic expert and you're happy for the government to interfere in our economy. Our interest rate in Australia right now is at a historic low. Last time I checked, it's 0.25%. Now, everyone who supports government controlling our economy, what would you do? Would you raise the interest rate to encourage savings when people can't produce to save in the first place? Or are you going to lower it, lower it to encourage lending when there are no new businesses allowed to operate? What would you do? The other huge problem with the forced shutdown is that we have no idea how many people are going to remain dependent on the system for financial support and for how long. The wealth of a nation is largely determined by production, not by the amount of money in the system, not about the money, amount of money that they print. All of these people are going to be out of work for a very long time with no end in sight. What we'll see is big businesses being bailed out and little businesses failing. That's exactly what we'll see. In the US, they passed the biggest wealth distribution bill of all time. And they weren't even going to vote on it. Only one congressman forced them all to vote. And it was the first time that a bill of this magnitude didn't have a recorded vote. That means that you can't see who actually voted yes or no. It was just like, you know, the eyes have it. And um, you can see the link on the show notes page of that going down as well. And what it all boils down to is very, very simple. The government should have no say in the economy because the economy works best when it's left to human action. Every government economic intervention policy from minimum wage to cheap housing to bailouts always hurts the population and helps the politicians and a small special interest group that it is concerned with. Put the stats off the table for a minute. You probably have some problems with some of the stats that I've cited. And even if we put the economy off the table for a minute, maybe you don't even care about that stuff and you just don't want to listen and you're like, look, the government can print money and money is just based on um, the value that people perceive it has and we should be okay. It's kind of like a carrot, uh, you know, the carrot on the stick. It's fine. Okay, let's put it all off the table for a while. And I want to ask you, if you support the government for shutdown, how much of someone's life are you personally entitled to take and for what reason and for how long? How much of someone's life are you entitled to take and for what reason and for how long? Are you entitled to strip a person of his livelihood, his passions, desires, purpose, meaning, relationships, communities, wealth, happiness, mental health, and his hobbies because you think what you value is more important than what he values? And if you, you want a practical example of what different conflicting values look like, look at the Black Lives Matter matters protest going on at the moment they obviously value a change in the system more than staying home saving lives 
Now, are you going to force them all to stay home? That's just one example. Here's another example. If a 95-year-old wants to spend his last days of his life hugging his grandchildren and holding the hands of his childhood sweetheart, who are you to take that away from him? If grieving friends want to comfort each other and honour the death of a loved one, who are you to break up the funeral? If a man suffering from mental health issues needs to sit in the sun reading a book for an hour, who are you to force him back inside? And if you think this isn't actually enforced, again, go to the website, look at the link, and you'll see how the Australian police broke up a funeral. The best way for a civil society to progress into the future is by increasing personal responsibility as much as possible by decreasing the amount of responsibility we outsource to the government. We should strive to treat others how we want to be treated. We should not use force against others, even if it is for some sort of collective good. As an individual, you are responsible for your own health, for your wealth, for your savings, for your happiness, for your choices, for your business, for your relationships, for your attitude, basically everything you are responsible for. After you take full responsibility for your life and your actions, then you can help your family with their health, with their happiness, with their wealth. And after that, you can help your friends. And then you can help your community. My point is that responsibility flows outwards and it starts with you. As a free individual, you balance risk and reward every single day. If you die of heart disease, was it because the government didn't make a law to ban fast food? Or was it because you were so irresponsible that you ate yourself to death? By the way, heart disease causes 9 million deaths per year. So if you're going to extend your philosophy to save lives, give the government the power to control what other people eat. That's the same philosophy that you are abiding by when you say stay home, save lives, or else you'll get an $11,000 fine. So how does responsibility stop COVID-19? Well, I'll explain shortly. What we have done is become so comfortable in our irresponsibility that we have unconsciously chosen to outsource our responsibility to a third party. You no longer are responsible for your health. If you eat sugar and smoke your whole life, our public health system will save you. You're no longer responsible for your savings. The government forces you into a superannuation fund. Oh, by the way, how's that going? Have you checked it lately? You're no longer responsible for getting a job because you're paid and incentivized not to work. Do I go on? These safety nets have become webs that have kept us dependent on a system that makes choices to keep itself in power, to keep us dependent upon that system. It's justified in making these sweeping decisions because if it doesn't, we all suffer the consequences. For example, because they are so involved in the money supply and monetary policy, they have to bail out the banks. Because we're all dependent on the big four banks. We have no other options available to us. So if those banks fail, we all suffer. By the same token, if the public hospital system fails, we all suffer. Now, how personal responsibility could fix these individual institutions is a long story, so let's leave that for another day. But you might say, people are irresponsible and stupid, and they need to be told what to do. Okay, well, let's take our current situation. How would a responsible adult who self-isolates be killed by an irresponsible adult who lives his life and goes to work like there was no such thing as a virus? If the responsible party is sheltering in place, how is he at risk? How can you get wet from rain if you never leave the house? Perhaps you'll say, well, but the people outside will make the virus R0 increase, and then it's more likely that uh, our carers will get it, you know, our hospital workers. Okay, that is a somewhat good point. 
But if the carers are self-isolating, only leaving the house to get in the car and go straight to the nursing home, is that really going to increase the risk if they're taking full responsibility? Of course, the other argument would be to pay staff to stay on site, but that's another issue. And I think it boils down to this as well. No man has the right to live a life free of risk because that life does not exist. You might continue to say, well, by going out, you put us all at risk. But then you have to prove that people responsibly going outside creates a bigger risk than forcing everything to shut down. And the numbers we've already gone through, the suicides, the domestic violence, the starvation, uh, all of those things show that this is going to end much worse than the deaths caused by the virus. If a responsible son is ensuring his father and grandfather are well looked after, isolated with enough food to last for months, is their risk of death really increased by some random person who goes to Bondi Beach? If you're really terrified of death and value nothing more in life than to be safe, you could stay home and survive. No question. Of course, what about dense populations in inner cities? What if it gets in the air conditioning? You know, oh, there's a good, it's a good question. It's a good point. But I counter with, how do you think the government forcing people into their homes helps in those cities? Shouldn't they leave and go somewhere less populated? The funny thing is that the whole essential category blatantly violates the rule of law. The rule of law framework, treating everyone equally under the law without privileges, it is what, it's what made Western civilization so great to begin with. But with most great things... We take it for granted and we let it slip away when some spastic eats a bat. The opposite to individualism is collectivism. And we can see the results of that in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Yet it's not big evil governments that murder millions of people. It's the thought process of the people turn into collectivism and a distorted notion of collective responsibility that gives them the power to justify their actions in the first place. Here is a more recent example. We were told that Iraq had WMDs. We had to invade or else we could all die. A clear picture of the government telling us that there is a threat to our safety and that we have to let them handle it. No WMDs were found. Yet 207,000 innocent civilians died because we were irrationally scared. If this is a war against a virus, then we have all been conscripted to fight using tactics with catastrophic collateral damage. At the end of the day, freedom is more important than safety, because the road to living under a tyrannical government who has complete control over your life is paved with good intentions. At the end of the day, my health isn't your responsibility. My grandpa's health isn't your responsibility. I'm not forcing that upon you. In fact, Bad health choices in the USA is the single biggest chronic factor in COVID hospitalizations. So why shouldn't there be a law against being fat? Because it's the choice of the individual. Let them bear the consequences of bad life choices. If you yourself are not comfortable forcing someone into their home for an indefinite period of time for your own sense of safety, then you have no reason to support the police to do it for you. If you can't morally justify forcing man into isolation, you can't support a government to do it for you. In the UK, Lord Sumpton summarized it as this. What sort of life do we think we are protecting? There is more to life than the avoidance of death. 
Life is a drink with friends. Life is a crowded football match or a live concert. Life is family celebration with children and grandchildren. Life is companionship. An arm around one's back, laughter or tears shared less than two meters apart. These things are not just optional extras. They are life itself. They are the fundamentals to our humanity, to our existence and as social beings. Of course, death is permanent, whereas joy may be temporarily suspended, but the force of that point depends on how temporary it really is. And just as an extra, here's my savage argument. A really harsh way to look at it is, look, if you're 80 years old and you die, you might only have four years of life left. But a 20-year-old who dies, who necks himself because of all of the stuff we're doing, he probably has 60 years of potential life left. So if you look at those numbers, how many years of life are we actually saving if you want to look at it collectively? But I hope by now that you see it's actually a voice choice Why? Because that level of control, that level of power should not be in the hands of you or Scott Morrison or any other person. Never before in the history of our country has a prime minister used his power to shut down the entire country and put everyone into house arrest. Ever. I'm against the forced government lockdown because history suggests that bad economic policy will have a worse outcome than if we simply used our personal responsibility. That dependence on middle class welfare upholds a corrupt system that bailouts help big businesses to swallow the small and that the wealth of a nation will be stolen through inflation and taxes and that the stats show that there was no exponential growth of the virus in terms of ICU bed numbers and that is why we went into lockdown so we should just stop and stop giving the government this unbridled power because it's more dangerous than the virus. For what is the point of living if your hopes and dreams and aspirations and relationships and business ventures and family gatherings and adventures and religious gatherings can be put on hold indefinitely? Thank you for listening to the Political Deactivist podcast. I hope you learned something or I hope I triggered you in some way. If you did not like this podcast, be sure to send it to one of your enemies because any view is a good view. Be sure to watch our movie at anotherwaymovie.com and be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which you can find in the show notes page. I'll see you next time.